You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to the podcast, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. Today is the 12th of February, 2016, and this is another edition of the QFC podcast series, a.k.a. Questions for Corbett, where you send in questions and I supply answers. And there are, as always, many different ways to get your questions in for this series. You can go to CorbettReport.com, click on the contact tab, and there you can either leave a text message for me or you can record a question via the SpeakPipe audio application there. Or you can go to Twitter and tweet me at Corbett Report using the QFC hashtag. Or you can go to YouTube or Vimeo or any other video sharing platform and record a video message, which I will then use in the next edition of this series. Or, as always, the best way to do it is if you're a CorbettReport.com member, please log in to CorbettReport.com and leave your question in the comment section for the previous edition, or this edition, I suppose, if you're watching this, of this podcast series. And having said that, we have reached a bit of an impasse with this podcast, because I don't know if this is a new trend, or if it's an anomaly, or if it's going to continue, but this month there are way more questions in the comment section of CorbettReport.com, let alone the emails and videos and tweets, than I can possibly do service to in a podcast like this. So uh, I'm not sure what to do about that. I'm contemplating whether this needs to be a more regular series or how best to address this problem. But in the meantime, uh, for today anyway, we're going to not be able to answer all of the questions, even in the CorbettReport.com comment section, let alone all of the other questions. So uh, I'm going to concentrate on answering a few questions very well rather than a lot of questions very poorly. Uh, I I think that's the best trade-off, at least for now, until we figure out how to proceed with uh, this series. Having said that, let's go into the comment section of the previous QFC. QFC number 27, Is Government Propaganda Illegal?, where there was a lot of discussion going on, as always, lively discussion and debate and links being passed back and forth as CorporateReport.com members try to learn forward together, which is the real point, I think, of having an open source community. So it's always good to see and a lot of lively discussion on anarchism and migration and other issues that were raised in the past uh, last edition of this series. Let's see if there are a few questions that uh, we can get through, hopefully, fairly quickly here. Um, One from Eric, asking for my take on the existence of advanced technologies and the secret application of those technologies. I think the best, or at least most explicit, answer I've given to that type of question is in episode 244 of the Corporate Report podcast, Secret Weapons Technology, where I talk about not just the secret weapons that we know exist, but also... Well, there are secret weapons, obviously, that we don't know exist and don't know anything about. And there's lots of smoke screens and different ways uh, that they can veil what is actually going on in the skunk works of DARPA or what have you. So how do we address that problem, the unknown unknowns, as uh, Donald Rumsfeld famously remarked? So uh, I tried to address that in episode 244 of the podcast. I'm sure there is more to be said on that subject, but I think that would be a good starting point. Uh, Next, we have Severin writing, I was wondering if you've looked into the insurance industry. Does that industry play any part in the oligarchy families? And if so, how? And that's a great question, Severin. Thank you for asking it. Um, The short answer is yes. The long answer would require several hours of elaboration, I'm sure, to do any justice to. But to give you a flavor of that answer, well, first of all, perhaps this question was inspired by it. If not, I did talk about the insurance heist aspects to 9-11 and the WTC and what went on there in my 9-11 Trillions documentary. So if you haven't seen or listened to that yet, I hope you will do so. But probably, again, the most explicit elaboration on the question of intelligence agencies and insurance agencies and government and how they nexus in, I would say the best place to go would be episode 232 of the Corbett Report podcast, AIG Exposed where I elaborated in great detail about the history of AIG and how it nexuses into the Wall Street lawyers that comprise the intelligence agencies and how they're really a sort of arm of government or at least shadow government. And it's a fascinating story. And again, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, or even if you have, but it's been a while, I suggest you go back and listen to it or re-listen to it. There's a lot of, I think, juicy information in there. And you're in luck because it just so happens that is one of the old podcasts that was recently refreshed and given new life, new lease on life by being made into a video that has been posted to the Corbett Report Extras channel. So once again, if you haven't subscribed there, please go to youtube.com slash Corbett Report Extras and subscribe to that channel. And while you're there, check out episode 232 on AIG Exposed. Again, lots of interesting information along the lines of what you're looking for there, Severin. 
And yes, there is a lot more that needs to be said, but I think that's a good starting point. Uh, let's move on to the next question from Mick, M-I-K. I'm not sure how that should be pronounced. But anyway, uh, Mick writes, I have a question on how to solve the problem of natural monopolies in egalitarian society, roads, water supply, etc. You talk about this in the episode, but what about the roads? But the solution proposed would hardly work in a big city. I think we need a better solution so that in the end, a pie wouldn't be more expensive than the pot which has been used to bake it. Okay, thank you for the question. For those who don't know, uh, Mick is referring to the, the standard kind of economics textbook a concept of a natural monopoly, like, as he says, roads or water supply, utilities of various sorts, electricity, for example, are often thought of as natural monopolies, the type of service that's very important, very important to the functioning of society, but which competition doesn't, a lot of competition doesn't make sense. You can't have 15 different water supply companies all with their own water supply infrastructure going, you know, tearing up all the roads and going through all the city so that you can switch from company A to company F and they they route some new pipes into your house. I mean, it, it's a mind-bending thing to think about how competition would work at that level. So they are called natural monopolies, and the idea is that either the government will provide them itself, or it will charter some special grant of monopoly privilege on some select corporation. <laughs> what could go wrong there, right? Um, well, there's a couple things to be said about this. The first is that natural monopoly is a myth, and the best deconstruction of that myth is from an essay by Thomas D. Lorenzo called The Myth of Natural Monopoly aptly enough. So um, I will direct you to that essay. I was going to read parts of it here, but it, you can't really do that. It is an essay that needs to be read. There's so much elaboration of detail in there about the myth of natural monopoly, how it came about, why it came about, and why it is wrong. And just as a taste of that, he cites some specific historical examples like the Baltimore Gaslighting Company, uh, which uh, it suffered from no lack of competition in its early years, uh, but it wasn't until it stopped trying to provide the best service it can to its customers to win them over, and started taking that energy and time and using it to lobby state and local governments to stop granting charters to its competition, that it became a natural, quote-unquote, monopoly. In other words, the monopolists would love you to believe that there are natural monopolies that just have to be granted to them. Oh, you just have to. It just doesn't make any sense any other way. And uh, again, there's no historical evidence for that. There's a lot of historical counter evidence for that, that there is no such thing as a natural monopoly. And the only way these come about is through lobbying and crony corporate capitalist schmozzle government, which is exactly what we live under. So the myth of natural monopoly by Thomas DiLorenzo is the best elaboration of that. And for a specific example of that, in for those who are still incredulous at the idea, uh, if you've been following the news, you've probably heard about the Flint, Michigan water supply problem. Because, again, what could go wrong with the government having a monopoly over natural uh, uh, supplying of key resources, right? Um, a great discussion of that was in the recent Contra Krugman podcast episode number 20. And for those who don't know, the Contra Krugman podcast is a weekly podcast deconstructing the weekly uh, editorial from Paul Krugman, Keynesian, bizarre, Nobel Prize winning uh, moron, basically, <laughs> for those who need a, a, a precise, uh, a concise term. Um, and in that podcast, in episode 20, they were talking specifically about the Flint, Michigan water supply problem. And they talked about the idea of public goods and natural monopoly and how it applies in this case, or more accurately, doesn't apply. And uh, the problems with those concepts. And I think that was a good discussion as well. So I'll throw both of those in the show notes. Again, everything we talk about will be in the show notes for this episode on CorporateReport.com. And if you're watching on YouTube, the link to the show notes is in the video description. So that's at least a start towards an answer to your question. And also let me let me push back a little because uh, you say that the solution proposed in But What About the Roads to the question of the natural monopoly of roads is uh, wouldn't work in a big city. I would need some more elaboration on that. Uh, I think, uh, first of all, I think there is no single solution, because I'm looking for a free society where there is competition of ideas, so I think there are as many different solutions as there are people who can come up with ideas for solutions, and the solutions can compete or coexist or what have you. I think that's the real ideal that we should be striving for. And secondly, I, I, I think that the episode did detail exactly how such things would work, even in a big city, and uh, have worked. So... <laughs> So again, I don't know uh, what you mean by the fact that the solution wouldn't work in a big city. All right, next, let's go to Lance, uh, who writes, If I protected my family's material wealth against hyperinflation by buying some precious metals, 
who would then buy the metal when it's $50,000 an ounce or 2K or anything in between? All right, good question, Lance. I think this goes to the heart of the question of whether people are investing in metals as an investment or as a hedge. And they, those are different concepts. If you're investing it, as, if you're trying to invest and you want to turn it around and sell that precious metal later so you can get some more paper money and use that, then yes, uh, you could think of a, a scenario where metals prices spike a lot and, and well, the, you know, who's going to want to buy them because, you know, this paper money is just so valuable. But if you're thinking of it as a hedge, this is, I mean, essentially it's like insurance. You are essentially uh, buying insurance against something like a hyperinflationary event, which again, for people who don't know, this is talking about a, a situation which has happened in history in various times and places where suddenly these paper pieces of money aren't recognized as being valuable anymore. And suddenly you need a whole wheelbarrow full of them, however many you know, billions or trillions of these dollars, nominal dollars, in order to buy a loaf of bread or what have you. That kind of scenario, one could imagine, yeah, suddenly precious metals are valued much, much more, more highly in terms of dollar figures, just the, the, the numerical value. But who's going to buy them? Because everyone's scrambling for this paper money. Uh, I think that's the wrong way to think about that situation in particular, because in that situation, people are not interested in the paper money. I mean, it, that means nothing when you need a full wheelbarrow full of them in order to buy a loaf of bread or what have you. Um, what people are interested in is the loaf of bread. And how do you interact with someone and transact in order to get that loaf of bread? In that environment, people would be looking for alternatives. And the most natural would be precious metals, which have been used for thousands of years and understood. And, you know, there are ones that you can get uh, minted coins that people understand the value and that are, you know, 99.99% uh, and all of that. So that in that situation, suddenly the value of that type of monetary unit as a basis for transaction becomes apparent to everyone. So you probably would not want to trade your precious metal for more of those worthless pieces of paper in that environment. You would want to trade it for actual goods that you want, shoes or loaf of bread or what have you. So that, I think that's the way to look at that situation. In that situation, I think a lot of people would be interested in the precious metal if it is being exchanged. If people recognize its value, if it is being exchanged, then people would be interested in it. But I think there are other considerations in that environment because almost guaranteed there would be government regulation or restriction on those types of transactions. They wouldn't want people trying to, you know, find a, an alternative way to transact with each other, one would assume, and there would be new taxes and restrictions on what you can do with your metals, and there would be a black market economy, and suddenly agorism would become a, a normal part of life for a lot of people, I think. So, there's a lot of different things to think about there, and one of the things that we should keep in mind is that I, as I said before, I don't think the hyperinflationary Mad Max collapse scenario is necessarily the most likely collapse scenario. I mean, I think we are heading into some calamitous economic times, and I will be writing about that a little bit more in more detail in this week's subscriber newsletter, but having said that, um, it's not necessarily that it's going to be a hyperinflationary environment. We're moving into perhaps a different different paradigm that we haven't seen before. The the cashless banking holiday banker bail-in paradigm is coming along and that changes a lot of things. So, well, that's a lot of elaboration on that question, but I hope it goes to show that in that environment, at any rate, you're probably, you don't care necessarily about the pieces of paper. You care about what you can actually get for those pieces of metal. And I assume that there would be other people who would be interested in that metal for that exact same reason. All right. Again, uh, lots and lots of questions there in the corporatereport.com uh, uh, comment section. But let's move on to a video question. Again, we received a video question this month, so we're going to play it from Harvey. Uh, he's over at the YouTube channel Popcorn Lobotomy, which I'll include a link to in the show notes if you're interested. And he uh, supplied this video question. Hey, James. I originally posted this as a comment on your big oil video, which is awesome, by the way. Just epic. Uh, but then figured it's probably more of a question for Corbett. I wonder what you think about the theory put forward in the paper on the viability of conspiratorial beliefs. It may be kind of funny to those of us who look more deeply into the obvious conspiracies going on around us, but this paper has been presented to me a number of times as evidence against the very concept of conspiracies. It seems once someone reads the article, usually not the paper itself, just the article, because, you know, math... Uh, they're forever released from the burden of having to consider any conspiracy that may be put before them. 
If you haven't already, I wonder if you would consider directing your intellect or that of the open source community toward analysing this oversimplistic counterproductive paper. And in a wider context, you have a more general collection of tools to combat the lazy debunker, or at least that's what I call them. I'm okay at it, but I get frustrated when such a thing is blocking a potentially productive conversation. Um, and on another note, interestingly, it was your hilarious speech at Acapulco, or Anacapulco, and your subsequent Corbett Report video, Laughing at Tyrants, that inspired me to include conspiratorial subjects in my review channel, Popcorn Lobotomy. In it, I review movies, but I also include uh, what I call a conspiracy rant, which contains an overwhelming data dump of every crazy conspiracy, a conspiratorial idea on a topic that's inspired by the movie at hand. Who knows, maybe the, while the audience is having a laugh, they'll trigger on a few keywords and, and research for themselves a topic that they wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Who knows? I've just started the channel and released the first video this week, so hoping, hoping it catches on. If not, maybe I'll split the two, just do straight reviews and uh, include the conspiratorial stuff in a more serious video in the vein of what you do. But uh, I'd like to see how the, the comedy goes. I think it might, uh, might have a better chance of catching on and getting to a new audience. Anyway, you're doing fantastic work, and uh, yeah, keep punching. Uh, big fan right here. Cheers. Thank you for the question, Harvey. And again, for people who want to check him out on YouTube, it is Popcorn Lobotomy. And I checked out his review of Battlefield Earth, and I noticed that you managed to slip in a screenshot of the Shut Up Conspiracy Theorist video in that video, Harvey. So good work on that. And thank you for the question. It is an important question because I am sure this has probably popped up on the radar of a number of listeners to the Corbett Report. But if not, let's go through what exactly is he talking about. So in the journal PLOS1, recently there was an article published by David Grimes, a physicist at uh, Oxford on the viability of conspiratorial beliefs. And probably most people, most normal mere mortals, are going to encounter this through the popular press. So let's take an example selected at random, uh, upi.com, scientist develops math model to test conspiracy theories, which has an interesting summary. Uh, it goes, uh, to, it starts by framing this by saying, conspiracies and the misinformation many conspiracy theorists traffic in can make it difficult for researchers and policymakers to convince the general public of facts and theories largely settled within the scientific community. And one can positively hear the venom dripping from the pen of this author of this article. Oh, the conspiracies and their misinformation are making it difficult to tell the public what to do. What will we do about this? And it goes on to say the problem inspired Grimes, David Grimes, but his model is based on the reality that conspiracies do exist and have been revealed throughout history. <laughs> so after denigrating conspiracy theorists, the crazy peddlers of misinformation, well, yeah, I mean, conspiracies happen all the time and have always happened throughout history, but... You know, what? Well, that's neither here nor there, right? Anyway, I thought that was an interesting rhetorical turnaround. And this article goes on to say, Using a combination of mathematical logic and knowledge of past conspiracies, Grimes built a model to determine how long a systematic secret could successfully remain hidden from the general public. The model analyzes two main factors, number of parties involved and length of time, to estimate the likelihood that a conspiracy would be uncovered by a whistleblower or inadvertently revealed. Had the moon landing actually been faked, Grimes' model suggests that the conspiracy would have been revealed within 3.68 years. Grimes also applied his model to common conspiracy theories that climate change is a hoax, vaccines are unsafe, and that drug companies have a cure for cancer they aren't releasing. Grimes said there is more work to be done in order to determine why conspiracies persist and how to best combat naysayers and skeptics. Interesting. Well, those are some nuggets from that article, but I can almost guarantee you that the types of people who are going to be countering the actual information that you're trying to purvey to them by pointing to an article like this one probably haven't even read that far in the article. You'd be lucky if they've read past the headline. Oh, there's a math model that uh, you know shows that conspiracy theories are wrong. That's all I need to know. And I'm sure if you haven't encountered this argument yet, you will do so soon because it is uh, it's quite popular at the moment. And has been picked up by a lot of sites, not only in the popular press, but of course in the skeptic journals and things like that. As, oh, look, you know, here's a mathematical model showing that the, the moon landing conspiracy would have been revealed within 3.68 years. Look, it's math. Um, 
there are so many things that I want to say about this, but I was lucky enough that when I was preparing to say something about this, uh, Dandix of Press for Truth dropped an excellent video debunking this nonsense. A really good video. I hope you'll go and watch the whole video in its entirety, but let's just play a little clip where he says a lot of the things I was going to say. Ignoring the argument of compartmentalization. The basic premise is that if man-made climate change is false, or if vaccines weren't safe, or that if there was a cancer cure that is purposely covered up because it's not patentable, if those things were true, so many people would have to be in on it that leaks would occur and the conspiracy would be exposed. Here's the problem. One would want to select numerous examples of existing theories, theories of different sizes and durations, and plot them all on a chart. To be truly objective and research-orientated, one would want to have a lot of data points. If you did this, you may even see a pattern between the number of people involved and the months it took before someone exposed the conspiracy. The actual paper, however, only uses three examples and extrapolated from that. They were the NSA's PRISM program, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, and the inaccuracy of many FBI forensic tests. Another problem arises since the number of people involved with these affairs is unknown. Grimes just guesses putting the number of people involved with the NSA at 30,000. In reality, the PRISM program could have involved just 100 people, or even as little as 10. The data points Grimes used were completely useless. He didn't use enough examples, and the few he did use were not reliable. What's missing is data on conspiracies that have remained secret, not to mention, two of the three conspiracies he picked were before the internet era, omitting a rather major variable. There also weren't any small conspiracies in his paper, just three examples of big institutional affairs. All three are also based in the United States, with two of them in spying agencies where secrecy is a part of their job. From these bad examples, Grimes calculates the likelihood of someone in the conspiracy blabbing about it and exposing the operations. In a given year, Grimes calculates this at about five ten thousandths of a percent. This is ridiculous. If this minuscule, quantum-sized number was true, we wouldn't have the word gossip in the dictionary. No one would ever spread rumors or talk about people behind their back. There wouldn't be criminal laws and common law offenses regarding conspiracies. This is just one of the problems of equating mathematics with human action. People don't act like numbers in an equation. Well done. Bravo, Dan. Well done. Those are... A lot of the main points that I wanted to hit when I was talking about this. So thank you, Dan, for doing the legwork there. And again, please go watch the full video. But I think that does hit on a lot of the points that I wanted to mention. As always, with these types of mathematical models that are being used to try to construct, you know, here, here, look, we can explain all human behavior and all possible incidences of how this will play out with this model. Well, what goes into the construction of that model, first of all? What assumptions are being made? And as Dan points out, using three examples from all of history of three examples of conspiracies that have been exposed and in the pre-internet era, interestingly enough, and calculating from that some general rule about how long it will take for any given conspiracy to be revealed to the point where you can predict to the hundredth of a year. Oh, it'll take 3.68 years to <laughs> reveal this conspiracy. It's just ridiculous and should be self-evidently so to anyone who peels that apart for the reasons Dan said and many other reasons. And here's one point that I always try to make in these cases where people say, but this conspiracy was revealed in such and such number of years. How could they possibly? Uh, all of those examples that people are using are precisely examples of conspiracies that have been revealed. But 
that is the question. That is the point. What about conspiracies that have not been revealed? We don't know, so we can't use them as counterexamples or counterfactuals in making a counterargument to that, that thinking. It is question-begging to say, well, look, all of these conspiracies have been revealed, therefore all conspiracies get revealed. No, that is not logically correct. There are potentially many conspiracies that have been effectively concealed, and we don't know about them, so we can't study how they functioned. I mean, that's uh, it's just such basic points of logic that is the basic assumptions that go into this, plus all the other things that Dan pointed out there that we don't know how many people are involved in PRISM, so you know, let's just make a number up. 30,000, okay. thirty. I mean, he's just making numbers up and basing mathematical models predicting human behavior based on these made-up assumptions. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. No one would take this seriously if they were actually getting into the meat and potatoes of it. But who actually goes and actually reads through an article like this? You know, less than 1% of 1% of people would even look at it, let alone read through it. So, it's just annoying and silly and ridiculous and blood-boiling in a way. But that's the point. I think the point of this isn't that there is now some ironclad mathematical law of certainty about how many, you know, 6.42 years for such and such a conspiracy to be revealed. It's that... It's comforting. It is comforting for people to think that, oh, okay, it's been taken care of. There's now a mathematical model. Now I don't have to think about it. And people probably won't even, again, link to the actual article. They'll link to articles writing about this, saying, oh, there's now a mathematical model that explains conspiracy theories and how they're all wrong. And it's it's a way for people to turn off their brain and to not worry about anything that that, that might challenge their worldview. It's a convenient way to avoid the issue. And that is really the fundamental problem here. It's not that there's some now some mathematical model. It's that people don't want to look at anything that will challenge their worldview, so they will simply substitute this so as something as a, as an argument. Instead of making an argument, they'll just say, "Hey, look, I don't have to make an argument. There's a mathematical model." And that's the real problem, and that's why deconstructing this, I mean, yeah, it is important and valuable to deconstruct the ridiculous nature of this study, study this journal article, but uh, it's not going to fundamentally change anyone's mind. And I think that gets to the other part of your question. Okay, not just this study in particular, but generally speaking, when people try to push back against this, you know, by denigrating conspiracy theorizing, at that point, you're dealing with the psychology of that person. And if that person is not open to receiving information that challenges their worldview, then there's probably no argument you can make to get around that. Maybe there is, but, you know, I mean, it's a question of individual psychology. And I think often people get too caught up in in investing their own identity in trying to convince this person or that person. Some people don't want to be convinced and thus will never be convinced that they are wrong about certain things. And let's not just get on a high horse and point this at other people. I mean, everyone has those defense mechanisms and those blind spots. No one is 100% knowledgeable at everything. No one is 100% correct all the time. So we all get defensive when we are confronted in our worldview. And that's why these arguments have to be... I mean, I think the best way is to fire and forget, to plant seeds, and you never know how they're going to bloom in the future. I think it's counterproductive to get caught up in arguments that go on and on and on and on and on and on without anyone ever changing their mind. It's just a waste of your time and your life force and your energy and your psychic being. It, it just is disturbing for so many people I know who just get so caught up in this. So don't get caught up in it, is what I want to say. But anyway, thank you very much for that, Harvey. I do appreciate the question. Let's move on to opening the mailbag. And we had an email in from Peter who writes a very simple question. What do you know about peak oil? All right, thank you. Yes, good, simple question. And simple answer, it's a fraud. Uh, a lot more elaboration needed on that answer, obviously. Uh, I did do a podcast episode, Peak Oil is a Fraud. I think that was what it was called. Way back, episode 20-something? 20 23? I don't know. I'll put the link in the show notes if you're interested. But that's a very old episode of the podcast, so probably, I think, probably not worth listening to. I, <laughs> I don't think my early episodes were that great. But anyway, um, it, even regardless of how good or where my research and presentation was at that time, there's still a lot more information that's come out in the past decade. So let's update that answer about why peak oil is a fraud. And let's turn to William Engdahl, who I hope my listeners will be familiar with. Uh, he's written 
well, a number of things that we've talked about in the past, including Seeds of Destruction on the GMO issue, but he's also written A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics and the New World Order, and Myth, Lies, uh, Myth, Lies and Oil Wars, both of which were valuable uh, when I was constructing the Oligarch documentary, so highly recommended resources. And he has elaborated in some detail in the past about the peak oil fraud. So I did actually have a chance to interview him on this subject, and I haven't had a chance to put this together yet. I was actually going to do a peak oil episode, but that got derailed, and I don't know when or if I'm going to be able to put that together, but I do have this interview with Engdahl that I conducted, so why don't we uh, turn to that? First of all, I asked William Engdahl to elaborate on the history of this peak oil idea, where it came from, and why it's wrong. It comes from a, a shell oil geologist in Houston, Texas, in 1956, King Hubbard. He was a very strange man, He's, uh, had uh, sympathies toward Mussolini's uh, corporativism and various other things during the war. But King Hubbard uh, was a geologist for Shell, and he wrote a paper for the American, uh, I think it was Petroleum Association or Geophysicist, Geologist Association annual meeting. And the paper claimed that uh, oil was about to peak in the United States, lower 40, 48, uh, in around 1970. And after that, it would be inevitable decline. And the science behind it was nothing other than a so-called Gauss curve, a bell-shaped curve. And Gauss, the great, brilliant German mathematician, invented the curve as a heuristic and not as a description of reality. But for King Hubbard, that looked like a convenient way to present his theory. And he said, an oil well production goes up to a certain plateau and then slowly peaks and then drops rapidly down to zero. Well, a group of Russian geophysicists, chemists, and so forth, I'm in touch with them and have been for some years when I wrote Confessions of an Ex-Peak Oil Believer that really ruffled some feathers in the uh, media in general. They were commissioned by Stalin during the Cold War in the 50s to make Russia, no matter how they did it, make Russia as a strategic priority project independent from Western oil supplies. That was the downfall of Germany in two world wars. Stalin knew that very well, and he wanted Russia to be independent. They undertook a cross-discipline study of all the science, the geology uh, that was out there from the West, and came to the conclusion that the idea that oil is a fossil fuel is a roaring joke with no scientific basis presented by any physicist, chemist, or geologist in, uh, in the written literature. They said, how can oil come from dead dinosaur detritus or uh, from algae in the sea or from tree leaves? How does it get down so far into the earth? You know, in some, some cases, 20 miles under it's been discovered. And what brought all the dinosaurs to Saudi Arabia? You know, you, one of the scientists estimated that if there were 100% efficiency, uh, dead dinosaur meat converting through some mysterious process into hydrocarbons, you would need a block of dead dinosaurs 19 miles wide, 19 miles deep, a cube, and 19 miles high to account for the Gawar field alone, which has been pumping since 1949. Well, that theory uh, was kicking around in the 50s, and the, the aim of that was, as the boss of King Hubbard told him when Hubbard gave him the paper before he presented it, said, King, it's okay what you're saying here, just don't support that cockeyed theory that we're discovering so much oil because we want to keep the price high. Well, that's what King Hubbard did. All right. So all of this begs a very important question. Okay. If peak oil is a fraud and if the oil isn't a fossil fuel, what is it? Where does it come from? Well, what the Russians found out in their, in their deep geology, they were, all of the work was classified during the cold war because they were doing deep earth science, uh, and it was the same department of, of the Russian military and the Russian academia that was doing underground nuclear explosions to study how, how those could create earthquakes and so forth, because 
the U.S. was doing the same. They had to know what what potentials the U.S. was up to, as well as their, their own war agenda, Cold War agenda. So what they found is, or they developed a hypothesis in the 50s, and they tested it and actually confirmed it, that oil is generated from inside the core of the Earth. Imagine a giant fireball in the, in the core of the Earth. And then you have this granite mantle in a, in a layer uh, outside the core. And then above the granite mantle, you have all these layers of sediment going up to the top of the surface of the Earth. And the Earth is in constant dynamic motion. These tectonic plates, these huge plates, are coming together, crashing together, like in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince in Haiti, where three tectonic plates converge and diverge. And that's why you have these earthquakes. Haiti, by the way, is also the source of enormous untapped oil and possibly gas. Cuba, the same thing. So the Russians began looking at deep earth geophysics, the, the, the dynamics of this. And what they realized was that the under enormous temperature and pressure of the earth core, hydrocarbons, the primary hydrocarbon is methane gas, were forced upward through cracks in the mantle. The, the earth, imagine the earth is this ball that's slowly over millions of years expanding. That's why you have oceans, why you have continents, why you have mountain ranges. Uh, the oil uh, or the uh, gas then passes through ferrite or other metals and, and uh, materials that transform it into oil, what we call crude oil, into uh, coal. Coal is a hydrocarbon, by the way, and we're in, in no way running out of coal. It transforms into a variation of, of oil called uh, tar sands in Canada or in Venezuela, and shale oil, shale gas. So what they concluded is we're not running out of oil, as one oil economist put it. We're running into oil everywhere we look. And the U.S. oil company strategy has been to conceal that. There are two companies that do almost all of the world's geophysical mapping, where there's oil, where there's not oil. One is Halliburton, Dick Cheney's old company. It's a CIA proprietary, according to what I'm told. And the other is Schlumberger, which is based in Houston, Texas. So this is a very tight-knit operation. The control of the world oil market, the control of oil services, telling countries where there is oil and where there's not. Okay, we'll stop it there. Obviously, a lot more to say about this, and obviously, William Engdahl did have more to say about this, but I think that at least gives you a taste of this information and how, oddly enough, this starts to play out kind of like that natural monopoly idea. The monopolists want you to believe in the natural monopoly. Well, here's an example of a natural, if not monopoly, a natural resource that is naturally limited, and, oh, we're running out any day now. Oh, pay us more money, pay us more money. Uh, again, there are vested interests in making people believe that story, and it's not hard to understand how those vested interests function, and it's all part of the oligarchy and how it's functioned since day one. And again, this is something for, that struck me in the research for the oligarchy documentary, is that literally since the very birth of the oil industry, seemingly every every few years there's a choice quote from some well-positioned oil man saying, you know, oh, it's we're pumping too much, there's too much oil, we have to reduce supply or else it's going to be worthless. And every few years there's quotes from various people talking about this and uh, right from the 19th century right up to the 21st century. So interesting and interesting how it works and interesting how peak oil crisis, again, people were saying it was going to hit in 20, 20, 2005, 2010, no, 2015, okay, 2020, no, okay, we're good for the 2020s, it'll be 2030. Always crisis delayed, just like the overpopulation nonsense. So, um, a lot more to say about that. I will throw in a link to uh, an episode that I did a while ago that I think does play into this question of how um, people want to create artificial scarcity in order to boost the, the perceived value of something. That's going to be episode 191, How to Spin Gold from Straw. I'll also throw a link into uh, Engdahl's 2007 uh, Confessions of an Ex-Peak Oil Believer, where he starts to lay out some of this story in a lot greater detail. So I'll throw those in. And again, there is more to say about this, and hopefully I can get around back to that uh, Peak Oil episode of the podcast at some point. Anyway, um, 
let's leave that there. We'll move on to a Twitter question. Uh, once again, please use the QFC hashtag to bring questions to my attention. And this one comes from Chris Chambers, a.k.a. at Brightman, who asks, have you come across any other research on this? And then he links to a Daily Mail article from 2012, Is Ruling in the Genes? All presidents bar one are directly descended from a medieval English king. And I think the story will probably be familiar to people who've been around for a while in conspiracy circles or in the corporate report universe because if i didn't play the video about this which i think i might have i at least linked to it at some point or i heard it on the media monarchy podcast i know i've tangentially referred to this in some way before so but let's put it on the record uh here's a uh, video excerpt of a news a broadcast on this talking about a 12 year old girl who discovered that oh lo and behold all u.s presidents except for one are related to one british king it's a great thing for history. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, William Howard Taft, and President Barack Obama. One young girl traced them all back to one common ancestor. They're all cousins and all grandsons of John Lachlan. It's the first family tree of its kind. Pouring through more than half a million names for months, 12-year-old Bridge Anne D'Avignon discovered that all the U.S. presidents, except Martin Van Buren, are related to the former king of England, John Lackland Plantagenet, signer of the Magna Carta in 1215. Mildred Reed is his first great-grandmother on George Washington. And on Obama, Mildred Reed is the 10th great-grandmother. It started as an assignment to research her own lineage, tracing it back to roots in France. But Bridge Ann wanted to branch out. Well, I think we just all go back somewhere. It's just a matter of proving it. She started with George Washington. But unlike other professional genealogists that only looked at the male family lines, Bridge Ann was able to link the presidents together using both male and female ancestry. Before this, historians had only been able to link 22 family trees. He uh, kind of created a triumph of women's studies here. Bridge Ann also figured out she's an 18th cousin of President Obama, something she hopes to be able to share with him in person. I've written a letter to Obama, but I just gotten standard reply. I hope to meet the president and like explain it to him. In Paso Robles, Adam Rakusin, your Central Coast News. All right, as I say, I'm sure everyone will be at least somewhat familiar with this idea. You'll probably have heard this some at some point, even if you haven't gone through the research, that all of the presidents, in fact, all of the presidents, although she, Bridget Davignon, was not, Bridget Davignon, was not able to trace uh, Martin Van Buren back to that British royal line that descends from King John. Uh, there was another researcher a few years ago that uh, managed to tie him into Eleanor of Aquitaine, a.k.a. Gen uh, King John's mother. So there you go. Martin Van Buren was also part of the family. Yes, every single U.S. president, including Barack Obama, can trace their lineage back um, uh, to the King John or his mother. So in a way, Eleanor of Aquitaine is the progenitor of all U.S. presidents. A fascinating and startling thing, to be sure, right? Um, and so as I say, you've probably heard about this uh, but it isn't only the domain of alternative media and, and, you know, conspiracy theory circles, quote unquote. It is a pretty well-established and mainstream phenomenon. Uh, for example, on Quora.com, there's a uh, there's an article up, uh, a question up about uh, is are all U.S. presidents related uh, um, to the to each other? And the answer is yes. And it goes through this research. Um also, there is actually a theory, a political theory uh, of presidential selection in the United States called the Most Royal Candidate Theory that was developed by Harold Brooks Baker, the director of publishing at Burke's Peerage Limited, who at least as far back as 1988, that was the first mention I could find of it, but in 1988, he pointed out that George Bush Sr., then candidate, who would of course go on to become president, uh, was the most royal of any American president. He had the most linkages into that royal bloodline. Interesting. So I, I think the, the insinuation there was because of that, he was going to win over Dukakis, which of course he did. And so that became a, a theory that the most royal candidate will win any U.S. presidential election. An interesting theory. And it, this was covered, I think, in the L.A. Times in 1988's case. I mean, it, it's a mainstream documented phenomenon. Uh, so really, the question is, what does this mean? I mean, first of all, 
King John, who was that? King John Plantagenet, probably better known as the signer of the Magna Carta, and probably better, better known as the villain in the Robin Hood stories, that King John. So what does this mean? Is there an Illuminati bloodline that's controlling the U.S. presidency or something along those lines? Uh, let's break this down. And when you break it down, uh, things, startling revelations, like the fact that Obama and McCain are cousins, 22nd cousins, <laughs> means almost nothing. Let's Let's talk about this. First of all, for people who don't know, your cousin and you share a set of grandparents. Your second cousin and you share a set of great-grandparents. Your third cousin and you share a set of great-great-grandparents. So the idea here is you keep going further back in time to find a connection. And obviously, if you have great-great-grandparents, they have more descendants than your grandparents do. So there are more people who are related to you at the third cousin level, at the fourth cousin level, the fifth cousin level. So let's put these numbers in perspective. Let's go to the idea, Brad Ideas blog at ideas.forbrad.com. He had a post up a, a few years ago called Everybody is Your 16th Cousin. And in that he writes, to answer the question of how likely it is that somebody is your 16th cousin, we can just look at how many ancestors you have back there. 16th cousins share with you a couple, i.e. a great-grand-great-great-great-grandparent pair, 17 generations ago. You can share just one ancestor, which makes you a half-cousin. So your ancestor set from 17 generations ago will be 65,536 different couples. So you have 65k couples, and so does your potential cousin in your tree back there. The next question is, what is the size of the population in which they lived? Uh, back then, the whole world had about 600 million people, so that's an upper bound of 300 million couples. Uh, so that sounds small. You only have 65,000 couples in your family tree going back that far, but there are 300 million couples in the world. So it's 0.02% of couples. So the fact that you and someone else, some random other person are going to share the same 0.02% sounds unlikely, but it's part of that birthday paradox uh, trick whereby two people in a room of 30 people are, there's almost, there's very likely to be uh, uh, two people who share a birthday in any given room, even though there's only three, there's 365 days and only 30 people. It's one of those types of things. So that when you do the math, it is 99.9999% likely from these numbers that someone is a 16th cousin. And there are some, at, like the viability of conspiracy theory model, there are some assumptions that go into this. So for example, that theory wouldn't hold in a place like Japan, which was uh, largely almost completely isolated to the outside world for thousands of years and eth ethnographically homogeneous. Uh, homogeneous, homog homogeneous. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so that wouldn't apply there. But for example, if you're talking to people, you know, Anglo-Saxons in the UK, this is where you would be thinking about this. Everybody is at least your 16th cousin. Um, now, so let's put this in perspective then. And you can get some more examples of these numbers from 23andMe, which, you know, 23andMe. But anyway, the numbers are the numbers. Uh, again, you can't get hard numbers because every generation, of course, every family has a different number of children and you just have to do some guesswork and averages. But second cousins, you're talking about a few dozen second cousins. When you look at fourth cousins or third cousins, you're talking in the hundreds. Fourth cousins, you're pushing a thousand. Fifth cousins, you've probably got four to 5,000 of them. By the time you're back to eighth cousins, you have over half a million of them. So when it is revealed, <gasps> Obama and McCain are 22nd cousins, what does that mean? The answer is almost nothing whatsoever. Again, let's put this in perspe perspective. There was one researcher who tried to calculate the, um, the number of descendants that King John's illegitimate daughter, Joan, had, and... He calculated it as an estimated 130 million descendants from Joan, the illegitimate daughter of King John. Again, the further back in time you go, the number of generations, there are more and more and more and more issue that come from that. So uh, the fact that you might share some link to someone several hundred years ago, uh, again, might be a very, 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 very common thing and not all that unusual at all. So, uh, I mean, take a look at for example, there is there's some charts that you can find of famous people and how they're related to each other that shows, for example, George W. Bush is 11th cousins with Barack Obama, who is 8th cousins with Dick Cheney and 9th cousins with Brad Pitt. Or you have 
Diana, Princess of Wales, being uh, uh, 12th cousins once removed from Senator John Kerry. Or you have Madonna, ninth cousins two times removed from Celine Dion, and all of these things. And it, when you put it all like, like that and connect the dots, it looks quite impressive. Look, all these people are related. It's coming true. This is either a startling proof that all of the Illuminati bloodlines control everything and they're all related, just as I expected, or a startlingly benign and expected example of what happens when you start looking at connections between human beings. <laughs> that these people, it's confirmation bias, because these people are and their family trees are being investigated because they are rich and famous and people care about them, although maybe they shouldn't. But anyway, people care. Oh, you know, Brad Pitt, let's look at his family tree. Oh, George W. Bush, let's look at his family tree. So people are making those connections because they are looking for them. And that's an example of confirmation bias, which is why this is not such a startlingly amazing thing as people might think. But again, the proof is in the pudding. The proof of pudding is in the eating. So uh, if the most royal candidate theory is a theory, does it always work? Well, in 2004... Uh, the same Harold Brooks Baker who came up with this idea, Howard Brooks Baker, Harold Brooks Baker, Brooks Baker who came up with this idea, uh, he also predicted the 2004 presidential election based on the royal lineage of George W. Bush and John Kerry, and Kerry was more closely tied into the royal British bloodlines, so. Uh, Brooks Baker came out with a prediction, Kerry's going to win. And he said it, and it was covered in The Guardian and other places. Look, Kerry's a shoe, and he's got more royal blood. Didn't work out that way, did it? So as a predictive tool, it predicts nothing. And again, when you actually look into the mathematics of it, it's meaningless for all intents and purposes. The fact that um, uh, Obama and McCain were 22nd cousins is almost as mathematically a meaningless a statement as you can possibly imagine. So it's really not as convincing as it might seem at first glance. And I'll throw in some more links. Again, there's lots of links here for people to go explore this issue for yourself. I'm not saying that there is no uh, viability to a, to a theory about bloodlines and how they factor into you know what the, the real powers that shouldn't be. But I don't think it plays out at the puppet political presidential puppet level. I don't think they're they're, they're they've got their genealogy scholars behind the scenes working out. Okay, well let's put this fifteenth cousin in here, and we'll put this seventh cousin twice removed in here. <laughs> Our plan is coming true. I think that's a bit cartoonish. So it's an interesting thing, but. Like the f the fact that this little girl's website is called WeAreAllRelated.com, <laughs> that might be the, the clue that, yes, in fact, if you go far enough back, enough generations back, we are all related. So it really is a question of how far back you go in time. And some surprising things happen relatively quickly. Even if you're going back to the 18th or 17th centuries, you're very likely to find connections with people if you bother to, to look for them. So anyway, I think this is one that we can... Down, or it, it, I think needs a lot more elaboration. It needs a lot more to make it anything like a convincing theory of how the world really works. And it doesn't predict anything when it comes to presidential races. All right, uh, let's move on. Next, we have a uh, audio message report recorded via SpeakPipe by Corporate Report member Bo Bowie. Hello, James. This is Bo Bowie, and I have a question for you. Those of us who seek the truth, it is almost inevitable that we find ourselves in the wrong from time to time. I am curious, what are some of the bigger ideas and beliefs you have changed over the years? Something you thought was true or false, then which later you changed your stance on. For instance, back in college, I flirted with and was a proponent of the ideology of a clean vegan diet, but since then I have found myself more aligned with traditional approaches towards diet and health, a big influence from the works of Weston A. Price. Thank you, James, and even Brock, too, for all the time and effort that you put into the cause. Thank you. Thank you for the question, Bo. I appreciate it. I am racking my brain trying to think of an answer to this question other than the obvious one, which is to say my biggest change that I ever went through in terms of my worldview or the way I think about the world would be pre-2006, the non-conspiratorial view of history and politics, to post-2006, the conspiratorial view of history and politics and everything that I do here at The Corporate Report. Um, that was the most fundamental worldview change of my life, I would say, and I think everything that's come from my life since that point, has been predicated on that change. Which wasn't, I mean, it's not as simple as that. It wasn't a flipping of a switch quite 
so much because obviously I, I had questions and inclinations and things that I didn't understand or didn't believe about various things. I never believed Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone nut, for example, but it wasn't the way I saw the world or that structured the way I saw the world. So that change over from the, as I've talked about before, the good Canadian democratic socialist by default, by osmosis kind of uh, person to what I am today, an anarchist. I mean, that's a huge change that took place over that that uh, that switch over in 2006. And I've talked about that a number of times, for example, in my perhaps the most obvious and easy way to get into it would be my TEDx talk. Um, but also uh, the episode 162 of the podcast, 163, Meet James Corbett, where I talked in more detail about how I came to do what I do. I've talked about it a number of times in the past. So that would be the obvious answer to this, the biggest change. Uh, more recently, I talked on the anarchist standard about the psychology of changing one's worldview and how that happens and how you can help that to bring that about in other people or can you bring that about in other people. We had an interesting discussion along those lines recently, so if you haven't listened to that anarchist standard interview, please do so again. Link in the show notes. Um, I'm happy to elaborate in more detail, but that's that's what occurs to me off the top of my head. So thank you for the question, Bo. Let's move on to another mailbag question. This one from Ragadaga who writes, could you explain exactly what you mean when you talk about 2D versus 3D chess while discussing geopolitics? I'm pretty sure you're not making a Star Trek reference. Uh, thank you for the question, Ragadaga. Actually, I am making a Star Trek reference. <laughs> um, this is an analogy that I developed a year and a half ago or so. It struck me when I was trying to put together my episode on China and the New World Order, I needed a way to explain how the machinations occur at different levels, different levels and strata of the ruling class have different ways of relating to each other and the ways that they see the chessboard of geopolitics. So this all goes back to that standard trope of geopolitics as the grand chessboard, which has been obviously written about by Zbigniew Brzezinski, but it's been referred to classically as a chessboard for a long time. And the idea is that, you know, the, the grandmasters of geopolitic, geopolitical strategy are chess masters that are moving the pieces around like pawns on the chessboard. And uh, it's taking this square in order to gain advantage in that. I mean, chess is an analogy for war and geopolitics and positioning and strategy. So it's an obvious reference to make. And the idea here is, no, it's not... It, sometimes people say they're playing chess, we're playing checkers to show that, you know, the mentality of what people are doing is a lot lower than what is actually happening. But in fact, it's even more than that. It's not just that there's the 2D chess game going on. There's a 3D chess game going on. And the idea here is for people who have or haven't seen Star Trek, uh, there's a 3D chess board where it's not just moving pieces around on the two-dimensional plane, but also there are pieces that can move up and down. And I don't know if, I don't know what the rules are for what pieces move in what way, but you can imagine that some pieces can move, you know, two, two floors up and two floors down, and you can only move in this direction or whatever. But the idea is that that makes the game a lot more complicated. And especially if you are playing two-dimensional chess, all you see is the black team and the white team, and here's the board, and here's the way these pieces move. And you don't see that third dimension where pieces are dropping down and coming out and being arranged in other ways above the, the two-dimensional plane. If you don't see that, then you are playing a game that you can't even possibly understand, let alone win, because you're looking at the, the game this way and things are happening that, you, that just make no sense to you. And that's the way I think geopolitics is best understood because, yes, there is a 2D chessboard where it is black, white, team blue, team red, you know, it's uh, China versus the US in the in the South China Sea or something along those lines. And we can see, you know, okay, so they hate each other because of this and they're rivals and they're competing. But what about all these other structures and, and these institutions where China and the US and certain, uh, not, not China and the US as if nation states are totalizing things, but certain well-connected families in, in China and in the U.S. are cooperating in various institutions and working together behind the scenes or in, in ways that aren't usually put into that simplistic matrix of the 2D chessboard of rivals. How do you explain that? Well, it's like a 3D chess game. That's what I'm trying to go for. There are people above who see the three dimensions and they're moving pieces around in ways that don't make sense if all you're seeing is that two-dimensional. It's a long... <laughs> Maybe it's a difficult analogy, but I really think we need some way of visualizing, of understanding what's happening at a layer that's more complicated than the simplistic narrative we're given. Because again, if you see 
all of these rivalries, it's Russia versus NATO, it's China versus the US, then you don't understand the bigger picture of how a global governmental system is being formed by a ruling clique who do not care about you if because you're American or because you're Canadian or Japanese or anything else. They don't care about the nation-state systems because they're trying to undermine that. They work with each other behind the scenes. So we need a better analogy. I've talked about this a couple of times. I did a, uh, a Reddit AMA where I answered this specifically, talking about 2D chess versus 3D chess. So I elaborated it on, on it there, and I elaborated on it a little in the China and the New World Order podcast episode. I'll throw links into both of those for more, more explanation, if any is needed. And I should maybe I I don't know if I have to explain it every time I bring up this analogy because I know there are new people tuning in all the time, but uh, it, I, again I, I think we need to complicate our understanding of geopolitics and that's my humble attempt of trying to do so. If anyone has a better analogy, you know, feel free to use it. Um, but I, I'm using the 2D versus 3D chess analogy. Uh, let's move on to Mark who writes in to say, uh, how will the CIA sell all their illegal drugs without cash? Uh, this is such a common question. Every time I bring up the idea of cashless society, this is one of the number one questions. No, it'll never happen because they need cash in order to, you know, to so the cocaine importation agency, the CIA, can do their cocaine importation and what have you. They need to sell their drugs and do all their, you know, slush funds so they can spend money, you know, without anyone tracking it. So they need this cash. Um, that's, I mean, I, I get the point of that, but it's fundamentally based on a flawed assumption because... As, as Jack Blood always says, uh, all laws are uh, selectively enforced and political in nature. And exactly because of that, in the cashless society, there are going to be, I mean, A, they're only going to prosecute people when, if, and as they feel like it. So they won't prosecute the people they don't want to prosecute, like their CIA buddies uh, or cronies. And also, there will always be backdoors. There will be technological backdoors to, you know, to fudge things, to break into, to hack into bank databases and get money and stuff. And of course, the number one player in that black market kind of activity is going to be intelligence agencies who are going to have all the backdoors and be able to move things around. So they don't need cash. They will still be able to do their tricks and, and you know, deal drugs and whatever else they need to and get around all of the layers of security and control that are there for you and me so that we couldn't possibly be, you know, competition. So we can never compete with, with them at that level. So I, I think it's a flawed assumption. I don't think they need cash in order to break the law fundamentally. I mean, they'll still find ways to break the law because they're the ones who enforce the law, or at least different branches of the, the secret government, you know, can puppeteer both sides. So I think it's, uh, it's not a, uh, a valid critique of the cashless society argument. I think we are heading to cashless society, and I don't think that's going to stop it. All right, um, let's move on to Colin, uh, who writes, Hi, James. After watching Social Engineering 101 uh, episode 230 of the Corporate Report podcast, one is left with the feeling that there is a follow-on video. Uh, given that it was a November 2012 release, then that is quite likely. I'm trying to find out if there is such a thing. Uh, seems to be outside of the way the website is set up. Is there such a video? And secondly, perhaps an issue to look into for those like me who are recent joiners. Okay, for those who don't understand what he's talking about here, recently on that Corbett Report Extras channel, we uploaded episode 230 of the Corbett Report podcast, Social Engineering 101, which was an old podcast that, again, we've made into a video and released. So you might have seen that on the front page of CorbettReport.com recently. And that video did have a, a follow-on, a, a sequel video um, or a sequel podcast. So he's saying, well, this is an old podcast. Where, where's the next one? You know, how does it, where do I find that? All right. If you're in that situation, you're looking for an old podcast episode, there's a couple of ways to do it. First, you can go to CorbettReport.com, click on the Episodes tab, and there at the top, you'll find a drop-down menu where you can select any of the past episodes. So if you are looking for the follow-on video or the follow-on podcast, I should say, to episode 230, then get that drop-down menu and go to episode 231. And there it is. Or, again, if you know the number, just type episode 231 into the search bar on CorbettReport.com and you'll get it right there. So that's the easiest way if you know what you're looking for like that. Or you can use that drop-down menu to just browse through the, the podcast archives. That's the way to do that. And, of course, since the Corporate Report Extras is as, uh, being populated right now with old podcast episodes, you can find episode 231 now up on CorporateReport.com's uh, uh, secondary YouTube channel, youtube.com slash CorporateReportExtras. All right, a little housekeeping there for people who don't know, but there are new people tuning in all the time, so please 
do go to the website and there are thousands and thousands of hours of media in the archives for you to browse through. Enjoy. Okay, finally, uh, we're going to do something that we tend to do at the end of episodes here, which is turn the microphone around to you. Uh, instead of questions for Corbett, how about a question for you guys out there? This one comes from Mika, who writes, or Micah, who writes, just wondering that little bit of personal information. Uh, are you married? Uh, I'm single, and I find it extremely difficult to meet someone with my shared beliefs. Okay, thank you for this question, Micah. This is a very, 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 very common question. I'm sure we've all seen it online and heard it um, from various people that, you know, my loved one, my my wife, my husband, my my girlfriend, my boyfriend doesn't doesn't agree with me, and it's causing a lot of stress and whatever. Or I can't meet anyone because no one, you know, everyone thinks I'm crazy or whatever. I'm sure we've all heard some variation of this story in our encounters online. I can say personally, first of all, to answer your question, yes, I am married and I have a son and. Uh, uh, happily married to a person who doesn't care very much about the work I do and is one of the least political people I've ever met. So take that as you, uh, how it is. I, I think it's my grounding. When I disengage from the corporate report work, I can completely disengage with someone who doesn't care about what I'm doing and doesn't want to hear about it. So <laughs> that's fine by me. She doesn't disagree with what I'm saying. She, it's not like she's opposed to it. She just is not that interested. And I think that's a good grounding for me. Um, but everyone's different in their own personal psychology. So maybe that wouldn't work for some people. And so I'm going to turn the question out there to people out there about your relationships. Is there anything that you can share with regards to this question? Uh, is there any way that this can be counteracted? I mean, can a corporate report community, I don't want it to become a hookup community, but but is there a way that people can meet each other and form meaningful relationships that way by looking through communities of interest? Is that too exclusive? Does that create the situation where, you know, like myself, I appreciate that my, my other half is someone who doesn't engage with this material because it gives me a, a sort of way to back away from it, to step away, to... to breathe some fresh air every now and then. So, I don't know. Again, there's lots of ways that one can approach this. Um, the simple answer is that I'm married, but uh, I'd like to hear about your experiences out there. I'd also like to hear your questions. Again, send them in via CorbettReport.com, via Twitter, via YouTube, or Vimeo, or uh, you know, any other way you can think of. Audio uh, question. And I will get to it next month, I hope, or maybe sooner. Again, I don't know how we can deal with this question of too many questions. But uh, better to have too many than too little, so we'll close up the mailbag for today. That's going to do it for QFC number 28. Thank you again for your time. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. I'm looking forward to talking to you again real soon. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.